If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible is an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Let's be honest, winter makes us want to sit around and do a bunch of nothing. That's why we need help with our health and nutrition. And who better to help us with that than Rise Nutrition? You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, you can click on their link in the show notes and get a free wellness profile. That's Rise Nutrition. Find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z. All right, friends and fellow walkers, so excited for you to hear this incredible conversation with a man that is doing some amazing work as the lead pastor of Denver Community Church. Let me introduce you to Michael Hidalgo. I live in Denver, Colorado, been here for almost 14 years, married for 21 plus years. So my wife and I joke that our marriage is old enough to drink and three kids, 17, 15, and 10. We moved to Denver from Grand Rapids, and it was a really fascinating transition because if you know anything about Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's jokingly been called the epicenter of progressive culture, but it's deeply baked into a conservative Christianity, and we felt like we never fit because if you didn't toe the party line, if you didn't preach people's previously held presuppositions, life could become very difficult. And when we came here to Denver, what we found is Denver is naturally a place that people move to from all over the country to play for a while because it's uh, so much to do outdoors. And part of that exploring personality that would lead someone here also bled into their faith. And so we've just had an incredible time here growing alongside those who are part of our congregation, learning together, being challenged together. And it's quickly become home for us. And uh, we hope for many more years here. I love that. I was talking with my, my wife of 22 years, so our marriage can drink as well recently. And I, she was asking who I was interviewing today. And I said, oh, Pastor Michael Hidalgo. And she's like, where's he from? I said, oh, he's out in, in Colorado. She's like, of course he is. Everybody you interview is out in Colorado. That's where all the progressives are. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're not, you're not completely incorrect there. But why don't you share a little bit about your faith background? Where did you become interested in faith? What was your upbringing like? Well, I grew up in an incredibly strict fundamentalist context with my family to the point where I've had two therapists ask me in the past 10 to 15 years without joking if my parents were part of a cult. It was that rigid. And what happened is my family, who at that point was largely living on the East Coast, moved when it was just my sister and I left, the two youngest of six children, 
to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we were still in a Christian context, but it was incredibly different than the one we had lived in for my entire life. And that was the first time I remember, I was about 14, 15 years old, really trying to figure out if we're all Christians, why is this so different? And why are these Christians judging the Christianity I left behind? And and that really started to unravel. That was also coupled with the fact that I was never able to behave. And if you've ever been a part of a legalistic environment, behavior is paramount. And I was just never concerned about the rules. I was more curious naturally about how things might work. If someone told me that something was bad, I wanted to experience it myself to figure out whether it was or wasn't. And so as I headed off into college, I just had a million questions. Went to a Christian university, also very fundamentalist, and fell in with a group of guys there who felt the same way I did. We had sincere questions, and even asking those was deemed a threat. And the more I sensed questions were a threat, the more turned off I became. So I left college, was hoping to play soccer for a while. After college, that didn't work out. Ended up meeting a pastor that my parents set me up with, which I immediately was turned off with, you know. I think they wanted to save my soul. And um, in our first conversation, I just battered him with questions. And to my great surprise, he didn't try to answer one of them but he affirmed them and he eventually said to me, you're asking really good questions, keep asking them, those can lead you to great questions. And it was the first moment I had this kind of aha, like, oh, just like there was another way of living the Christian life that I experienced between New York and Michigan, there's another way of, of living out this faith, the spirituality that's present right here and right now. And so I got incredibly curious and started diving in and found all these expressions, even within Christendom itself, that were a part of our big, broad, massive stream in history. And that's really what sent me off in a direction and a lot of relationships along the way of people who I realized I wasn't alone in this questioning. I, I wasn't even the first to do it, that a lot of what I believed was new was actually quite ancient. The introduction to mystery, the idea that it's okay and that you can't explain everything and have the answers. So I don't know if it was one thing, it was a continued journey and I'm indebted to multiple, multiple guides along the way who not only affirmed me, but championed me and pushed me and challenged me. One of the things that I've been engaging in a lot of conversations about is something that you just touched on. This idea of the Christian evangelical world that I was immersed in for a long time really championed knowledge, really championed understanding. Yet my growing up, I grew up Catholic, and the first time I ever considered God was sitting in the woods, like just looking out over things. It made me think about divinity for the very first time. I can picture it in my head when I'm talking to you right now. And so after being immersed in the evangelical, conservative evangelical spaces, I found myself maybe in the last decade of my life trying to get back to that space of wonder. And it sounds like maybe you're in that same space, except you are doing it still in a church setting as well. Not just personally, but you're also leading a congregation out in Colorado. And from what I see of you on social media, that's the space that you're, you're pushing a bit. 
I would say yes to that, that idea of wonder. Abraham Joshua Heschel said something like, I did not ask God for wealth or power or fame or influence. I asked God for wonder and he gave it to me. And I guess for me, when I consider the things I'm drawn to, it's not things that I can control or manipulate or explain because those things get old really quickly. You know, my sanity is is downhill skiing, is being in the mountains and there's always something there when you see something that majestic and you realize I'm not apart from this, but I'm a part of it. And the recognition when you are in nature, when you're, uh, my spiritual director calls it, when you're communing with the more than human community, that you're part of something so vast and so big and so infinite that's continuing to expand and as it expands, actually continue to like creating itself. If we can't, even begin to explain that, how do we propose to begin explaining the life, the animating energy, God, whatever you want to call it, that's behind all of this, according to the Christian tradition. And so this is what we invite people into. I mean, if you consider it even like if you've ever in in your past, if you're listening, you've been out on a date with someone, or even you just met someone at work or met up with, with a new friend at a bar there's the people that within like 20 minutes, you realize you've, you figured out everything there is to know about them. And we politely call those people boring. And it, next time we're all going out and someone's like, Hey, we should invite James. You're like, no, let's, <laughs> but then you meet someone who seems to be endlessly interesting. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I want to, I want to spend more time with that person. And for some reason, our faith has taught us differently of no, here's what you need to know. And, faith becomes you get more certain about those things. That's a very boring relationship at any level. In this unknowing, in this mystery, in this not knowing, it becomes its own kind of knowing, as Richard Rohr says. Yeah. So here's a huge question that I have that it shouldn't be difficult for you because you're doing it on a regular basis. I struggle to find ways to experience that wonder in a community setting, in a church setting. So you as a pastor, a lead pastor, correct? Yeah. How do you take this concept of God that is so fulfilling to you, and you can go beyond just wonder, how do you make this rich and meaningful in a church context? Because so often it does become like that friend you were talking about that you don't want to keep inviting out. It's this thing that we go to because it's this thing that we do because it's what our culture does, but it's not something that breathes a lot of life into us. So how have you managed to do that in your community? That is a big question. (laughs) (laughs) I think I could respond about 15 different ways. You know, there's a thing in, I think that's been a part of the church for a long time. I haven't studied it. I'm just, I guess, conjecturing that whoever is standing up front on the stage with the Bible in their hand knows the most. And when I consider those who've gone before me, they've never tried to explain anything to me. They've always been interested in inviting me into something. And if you've ever had an experience, whether it's a great film or you go to a concert that's just transcendent, you realize how quickly you can't explain what you experienced. All you can do is invite people in. And so, yeah, I would say I believe the sermon is, should be the beginning of a conversation. The sermon should leave you with great questions rather than the answers that in a few months' time you'll figure out don't work anyway. 
you know, there's a fine line. It's not using the pulpit as therapy, which some pastors do, which can be really unhealthy, but it's inviting people into the journey that we are on together. So it's not, hey, here's what I think, here's what you should do, and if you do these four things that all happen to begin with the same letter, your marriage or your business or your life will be better. But it's, here's what I'm learning, here's how I'm being challenged, here's the questions that I'm asking, here's what I'm discovering and rediscovering. And that coupled with a very, very intentional, relational and vulnerable culture is what we've worked really hard on that we, we just had a conversation last night in our leadership with someone who's considering joining with us. And when she asked, what's the best thing for all of you as you work together? And everyone talked about vulnerability and friendship. If that's not the foundation, then people all of a sudden get afraid to talk about the questions, the sincere questions they have. And when we're not sure of where we're supposed to be, that's when we begin to cling to certainty. But if we're sure and rooted and connected in relationships to ourselves and one another and to the divine, well, then that's where the fun begins, in my opinion. That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. That leads me to another question that I get a lot and that I hear a lot. And I suppose that I've asked a few times as well. Again, in in my conservative evangelical space for a number of years, like the goal was people in the seats, souls getting saved. Like that, everything we did was surrounding that. From what I've experienced seeing you, following you, looking into your church, doesn't seem like that is your goal. So if I were on your staff or were coming to your church and I asked you, what is the purpose of your community? What is the purpose of your church? What are we trying to do? What would your response be? Yeah, that we want to be a healing presence in the world. I just think Christians are at their worst, at our worst, when we try to be the moral police of culture. And we've seen this played out. It's, it's, it's a really boring story. And this is what, honestly, I think really angered Jesus. And I think we're at our best when we're a healing agent in it. And what we talk about is that if we're going to be a healing presence, we have to be those who are participating in our own healing. And uh, Carl Jung talked about how the etymology of the word heal comes from the word whole and also the, the same word that's connected to healing and whole or wholeness is holy or holiness. And so depending on your background, you hear holiness and you think, I got to keep the rules. Well, holiness, if you go into the etymology of it, actually means no. It's learning how to embrace all parts of yourself, including the broken parts or the parts that you wouldn't want. Because as we're pulled forward further into this story by, by the divine love, there's a sense of all of these things that we'd rather do without will in fact one day be integrated into a whole. And that's the idea of holiness or healing or being a healed people. That's then what allows us to be a healing presence in the world. 2020 has been a nutcase of a year. We've lacked in wholeness and needed so much healing just because of what has happened to so many of us. I mean, I'm 90 miles away from Minneapolis, so the epicenter of some of the racial tension that happened in our country this year. Obviously, all of us are feeling what has happened with the pandemic and then the political nature 
that has been in our country. I mean, it's always been there, but it, we felt it really hardcore this year. So how then are you as a pastor, as a church community, a place of healing in a year like this? What have you done, even just very practically, what have you done to, to help people heal this year? Yeah, well, first thing some in our leadership took the mantle on and, and took off running with, which was incredible, uh, they started what we called good neighbor grants right at the beginning of the pandemic when it seemed like so many people immediately lost their jobs. So this was for the greater community. It wasn't just for those who are a part of our church and um, had a process for people to go through. And we're giving out grants of, of up to $5,000 per applicant, which was really incredible. We also created what's called a safe outdoor space for those experiencing homelessness. The demographic it's serving are people who identify as gender non-binary because they don't want to go to shelters because oftentimes shelters will say, oh, you're, they go with how you're identified at birth. So they don't feel safe in a shelter or it's a married couple who doesn't want to split up. And so we've given our parking lot and in partnership with several different organizations in the city here or in the city of Denver here, we were able to house temporarily 40 people and give them access to services. And that's just been incredible to see how that's taken off and the services that are being accessed and, you know, residents there who are now getting their GEDs and their EINs to start small businesses and access to dental care. So those are some of the practical ways we address some of what's come through the pandemic. We also, I had several pastors of color reach out to me and a few others after George Floyd was murdered. And so we as a church, there was like in every major city and, and even in smaller towns, it was great to see there were protests happening. And so we, as a predominantly white church uh, in a predominantly white city, we went down to support the protest. We said, we're here to serve and support. And we're not here. This is not our stage, our platform whatsoever. And that led us to engage with a group of churches with the guidance of uh, predominantly black churches in our area. And we put together a commitment to accountability and action. And so we've invited a host of churches across what's called out here the front range of Colorado, which is basically Colorado Springs up to Boulder. We've invited them into action and accountability. We're held accountable by churches that are predominantly churches of color. And together, we're going to work on what does it mean to become more aware to do the work ourselves? What does it look like to examine our relationships so we're not, without thinking, continuing to perpetuate racial nepotism? And then how do we together take concrete action? And that model comes from Jamar Tisby. And then at the less practical level, we're actually going through, beginning next month with our entire leadership, a grieving process. And as a culture, we recognize we're really good at denial. We're really good at escapism. We're not well-practiced in grief. And as I look at the anger and the vitriol and the just brutal hatred that we've seen flowing, I think that comes from a sense of deep wounding and loss, not from enmity. Even self-righteousness, I think, can come from that. So we want to dive deeply into the well of grief. And so we've connected with a psychotherapist out of California whose name is Francis Weller, who uh, will hopefully be leading us through that. And it involves learning, reading, ritual, grief ceremonies, and learning what does it mean for us to grieve. So again, we can acknowledge our loss through this long season. And that's again, part of the wholeness that we just talked about. 
Now, I was mentioning to you that the first time I ever heard of you is when I saw an article on you and your church community becoming an LGBTQ affirming community, and you weren't always that. And I know there's a lot of people, probably even a lot of people that listen to this podcast who don't necessarily want to jump ship from the community that they're currently in. They just desire maybe that their community would have a conversation to consider some change. This is one of the main areas they would love to see that change in. Do you mind sharing as best you can how that all came about? And then as succinctly as maybe you can, how you got from where you were to where you are. Where do I even begin? My goodness. If you're listening and you're part of a faith community, and Matt, I think you, you would attest to this. One of the things that's being asked about constantly is where the church stands in relation to the LGBTQ community. And that happened with increasing frequency for us from the day I I began working at Denver Community Church in 2007. And my heart had shifted out of my own cowardice. I kept it quiet because I knew this is the thing that blows churches up. And so I was the guy who would give really clever answers that were just vague enough for either side where you could kind of believe what you want. And one of my deepest, one of my deepest sorrows from that is I realized how it furthered our LGBTQ siblings. It furthered them from the church and from the heart of God because it still kept them in a place of uncertainty. So we eventually came to a place as leadership. We said, this is something we need to discuss. And We quickly recognized there's great theological arguments on both sides. What really changed the conversation was two things. One, we realized this is not a theological debate. We're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about human beings. We're talking about lives and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And so this has to, by nature, become a different conversation because lives are literally at stake. And then the second thing was, what's going to be good news in our context here in Denver for everybody? And we just determined after a season of listening to, we brought in, I don't know, a dozen plus friends from the LGBTQ community to speak to us with no agenda. We said that the floor is yours. You get to say to us whatever you want, and we will not oppose you. (laughs) We will not argue with you. And what quickly became clear is what is needed is for churches to open their doors without the yes, but. We just need to open our doors and say, we've sinned against you we've excluded you and you've embraced us long before we've embraced you and so you're free to serve at any and every level of leadership and humanizing that conversation which some critics will say you changed because you met someone who was gay or you changed because your father or mother after 20 plus years of marriage came out or your child or whatever it is and one of the things i find interesting is that Within the Christian tradition, regardless of one's sect or tradition or denomination, we agree God's greatest revelation was in skin and bone, in Jesus. So why are we afraid to allow God to continue to reveal God's self in skin and bone through our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer friends? I think God still does that. The only thing I regret is he didn't do it sooner. A church like yours going through the process that you did, and I'm sure it was not easy, and I'm sure it was a lot of heartache, a lot of sleepless nights, maybe even lost relationships, but that work has set some groundwork for other communities to be able to believe that it's possible to at least have the conversation. And I think that 
that brings people a lot of hope. So thank you for, I'm sure, what was a very difficult season, but hopefully a very beautiful one as well. Thank you for that. But one thing I'd say, especially if you're listening and you're a faith leader, is I, I've talked with pastors across the country, and there's always, well, we have to count the cost. And I'm like, you have the luxury of making a decision. But those of whom we're called to love and those about whom we're speaking, they don't have the luxury. When I say it's literally about saving lives, kids who grew up in conservative Christian homes who are gay are eight times more likely to take their lives. And if that doesn't motivate a faith leader to at least engage the conversation in a courageous way, I don't know what will. I really don't. biggest problem is religious people, yet the biggest healing could also be religious people, I think. And I think that's what you're seeing and what you're a part of and what you're leading at Denver Community as well. So again, just, I, I love it. I love what you stand for. I love what you're doing out there. Okay, here we go. Again, horrible year behind us, but I believe that anytime you have struggle, that it's an opportunity for great hope or breakthrough. Where do you see hope in the future of humanity, our society, our culture? What are you hearing? What are you sensing even in your own community? And as a pastor, what are you breathing into that space in your church? Yeah, you know, when the pandemic began, now almost a year ago, which sounds crazy to think about, there was, there was a lot of talk among many, me included, that this is an apocalyptic moment, and apocalyptic not in the sense of some crazy movie where it's scorched earth, but it's a revealing. It's a great revealing. It's a revelation of what, what is. And then likewise, for many in our country, George Floyd's murder was also apocalyptic. It revealed something. Now, if you speak with your friends of color, they've known this all along. Those of us like me, a white male, living in the lap of privilege, we had the option to say, we're not going to pay attention. I think those things, along with many others in 2020, these were revealing. They revealed what has long been true. That's even true of, of the insurrection at the Capitol. The reason that fills me with hope is that hope without reality is denial. Uh, Walter Brueggemann's the one who talks about this. And so if you've ever been to the churches where it's everyone's happy and all the songs are upbeat and everything is it's going to work out and at some point you're like screw this i'm done i can't do this anymore because sometimes your child doesn't come back sometimes the marriage doesn't get repaired sometimes all the prayers in the world don't lead to your loved one being healed and they pass away and so hope all of a sudden it not only is denial it feels like it's mocking you because it exists outside of reality and likewise, I think the season we're in right now is we have a lot of reality, but there's not much hope. And that can lead to despair and even nihilism where nothing matters. And so I think for me and for our community, as we contemplate what has been, what we recognized is this is actually as, as dark and difficult and as much of a struggle as this has been some of the reason it's been so hard is it's brought us face to face with reality and for many for the first time and that's precisely the place where hope can take root in a way that maybe it hasn't for many of us in our faith traditions 
Yeah, I think there's something absolutely true of that need to see it for what it is. You know, I'm very much an optimistic human being, which people might find interesting based on the content of this podcast. <laughs> but I'm very much an optimistic person. And so this year for me as well, uh, it's not that anything that happened was new, but the extent of it just felt like those things were ripped wide open so you could see all of it. I felt maybe like I couldn't see out to the edges. I could just see a little in the center. And now after what we've gone through with race, politics, and this pandemic specifically, among other things, you see all the way out to the edges and you see the work that's in front of us. But I agree with you. Once you see it all, then that gives you space to move forward at least on some level, or deny it. I guess those are your two options. You mentioned a little bit of some of the space that you're moving towards as a community. What are some of your long-term goals? I mean, you're not going to be there forever. There's a day when you'll retire from what you're doing. I guess the question is when you look back at your time at Denver Community Church, what are you hopeful to see in the rearview mirror? The first line that comes to mind is the or Mary Oliver poem. It's the last line that she talks about dying. And at the end, she talks about, I hope I wasn't just a visitor here. And talks about being a bride to amazement and a bridegroom to wonder. I would hope that people just said I loved well. I think that would be enough. Special thanks to Pastor Michael Hidalgo for being on the show this week. Make sure that you check out his website. It's michael-hidalgo, that's H-I-D-A-L-G-O.com. So michael-hidalgo.com. Check out Denver Community Church at denverchurch.org. And make sure you get your hands on Michael's books called Changing Faith and Unlost. Do not miss next week's show when we have Professor Drew Hart. He's a theology professor, an anti-racism leader, and a social change practitioner. Man, he was such a joy to talk with, and you're not going to want to miss the interview next week on Jesus Never Ran. And until then, keep walking.